And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, March 6th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the 2024 budget request comes out this week, kicking off a new congressional season. Plus, a progress report from the Merit Systems Protection Board. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, after a rocky update to the Thrift Savings Plan website last summer, officials from Accenture Federal Services, the contractor for the record-keeping transition, says it has made fixes and promising more changes still ahead. But nine months after that transition, TSP participants, federal employees and retirees, still voice frustration with the update. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, which hired Accenture, still has questions about how the company plans to keep fixing things. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, they had a board meeting and Accenture was called in. What did Accenture point to as to what it has been able to fix so far? The officials from Accenture who were at the board meeting said that they're in what they called a steady state after the TSP transition and the update last summer. They've made a couple of piecemeal changes to the overall update. So, for example, there were initial complaints from participants about the TSP investment summary page. Basically, when you log into my account, you can't see right away the breakdown of your investments. That's something that that participant said it was hard to find. And that's something that they said is really important to see right away. Now Accenture says they've made that easier to find on the homepage. Owen Davies, who's a managing director at Accenture, explained more. In the uh, improving my account access, one of the big areas where we see a lot of dissatisfaction is I can't get to my investment summary easily. The uh, prior solution had a, a homepage that was easily accessible. Uh, we've made some changes to the homepage so you can get to that quicker. There are more changes planned there. I think we have further room for improvement there to get more direct access to uh, where my money's invested, how it's performing, those sorts of things. Kind of makes you wonder whatever happened to customer journey mapping that's supposed to underlie these types of projects. Right. It's Yeah, it's a good question. And it seems like they're basically trying to take in feedback from participants and make these changes as they go along. They said they've also been trying to promote a lot of these new what are called self-service tools in the TSP So things like the virtual assistant features in the TSP mobile app and just trying to get TSP participants to use a lot more of these new features. They've tried to encourage more people to download the mobile app. Right now it has about 600,000 downloads, but that's out of a total of 3.4 million accounts. The biggest improvement is probably just with the customer service center. They've been able to really reduce the amount of time that people are waiting on hold, but there are still issues there. For example, there's a lot of participants who they say are repeat callers. So if they don't get the answer they're looking for the first time around, they'll keep calling back. One way that Accenture said they're trying to deal with that is they set up a specific voicemail inbox for those participants to try to more directly address those long-term issues. If somebody didn't get the answer they wanted on the phone, and I don't mean their answer shopping, they didn't get the result right that they expected. We set up a voicemail for people to call in and say, hey, here's here's what I tried to do. And it goes to an expert team who researches that, does an outbound call to that person. We're really seeing the uptick on that be very small. We, we left it open, right? And we're, we're thinking about how we can promote that to prevent people from 
being dissatisfied or have to be a repeat caller. But that's something that underachieved what we expected. We're taking it back. We're tuning that. We got to do some more comms on it. Maybe we need to make it easier, more automated, all those kind of things. Yeah, so this is really an omni-channel problem they have. The online and the telephone service center, it's all of a piece. And that digital assistant that comes through the website. And the initial rollout didn't work very well. People couldn't adjust how much they withdraw every year. Is it actually better now? It depends on the perspective that you are looking from. If you hear from Accenture officials, they said that they've improved a lot of these things, but they're trying to make continuous adjustments and improve things. But from the TSP participant perspective, they say there are still a lot of really long-term issues with the the update. It's not necessarily the customer service piece of it, but it's more permanent changes. They said that the way the new My Account system functions or is set up, it's it's a lot clunkier and it's harder to use, harder to navigate. And it's something that the, the board also has raised some concerns about as well. A lot of TSP participants are retirees and older, so they might not be as familiar with these new self-service tools. So there's just a lot of issues trying to get this newer type of technology just off the ground and running. Yeah, because, you know, you have to change websites from time to time and people never like their favorite old website to be changed. If it's done well, people get used to it pretty quickly and you move on from there. But if specific functions to managing your withdrawals and your financial life, which depends largely on the TSP or part on the TSP, don't work, then you've got a serious problem. And it's not just a, you know, I don't like the new website, but I can't do what I need to for my financial management. And the board also had some pointed questions for Accenture. They did. They gave a couple of questions and also suggestions or things that Accenture said that they would circle back to and look into more. For example, one of the board members said that they should try to set up a a team at Accenture to help with communications and resolve some of the more common pain points for participants. Another huge emphasis from the board was the importance of the phone line. As I mentioned, there are a lot of participants who do rely on using the phone and not the self-service tools, and that's something that isn't necessarily going to go away. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board Chairman Michael Gerber explained more. While the data is improving, and that's important, sometimes those, those anecdotal experiences are, are tough. It seems to be a pattern for family members of older participants. And I hear you talk about the technology, the challenges with the web, the app, virtual assistant. My parents were still with us. They would just pick up the phone and they would call. And so the call times, the wait times down, the call times, I think you said, are coming down. Folks are still having challenging experiences. So both the website and the phone lines still need some work is basically what he's saying. And he pointed out something. Yes, some of the older SIRS retirees that might be in their 70s and 80s and beyond are not comfortable with the online. They like to pick up the phone and they should have that service. What about the reaction after seeing these updates? What are we still hearing from participants? A lot of them are saying that it is it's it is more ingrained issues now. It's not necessarily the early issues with the technology and the rollout, but just things that they simply aren't happy with in the new TSP system. For example, there's not as much data that's readily available. If you're trying to look at past transactions, past statements, you have to call Thriftline to get those older documents. People have said on social media that, you know, the website is not much better. And when you actually try to call customer service, they say it's still very hit or miss depending on 
the representative that you talk to. The board has said they're trying to retrain some of these customer service representatives, but I think there is still a lot of frustration out there from participants who are dealing with the the transition here. And you and I have both been getting emails from readers, people that are in the TSP, that just couldn't specify the withdrawals they wanted or their required minimum distributions. They couldn't tune those. That seems to have been fixed, though, in recent weeks. It seems like that problem is fixed. There were a couple of issues over the past couple of months. One other instance, there was an issue with the required minimum distributions at the end of 2022. About 2,400 TSP participants, they had some an error message with their mailing address, which caused them to actually not get their required minimum distribution from TSP at the end of the year. And that is a concern from participants that we both heard about, I think, because if you don't take out that RMD, then you do get a penalty from the IRS. TSP has issued an apology about this, and they're sending out letters to those who were affected to be able to communicate with the IRS that, you know, this was an issue on the TSP side and trying to help them avoid getting that penalty. Some work done, some work to do. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And tomorrow, TSP External Affairs Director Kim Weaver will join us with an update on the modernizing effort from the inside. We'll see how that looks again tomorrow morning. Kim Weaver from TSP. Still to come, a progress report from the Merit Systems Protection Board. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. It's been one year since the three-member Merit Systems Protection Board has had a quorum after several years without one. A big challenge for the board was clearing a five-year backlog of appeals cases. Now it looks like the pace of that clearance is accelerating. For an update, Acting Chairman Kathy Harris, who joins me in studio. Ms. Harris, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And I don't want to only talk about the backlog, but that's the big topic of the board. But it looks like you are getting up into the triple digits per month clearing this. What's going on? What's the current level of the backlog and and the pace of clearing it? We cleared about 437 cases in the past two months. But that was what I call the sprint because we knew Tristan Levitt, our third member, was about to leave. And we wanted to get out as many cases that he had voted on as possible before his departure. So we redeployed some resources in order to accelerate the pace of getting those cases out. I don't expect that to continue, but we're really excited that we've cleared so many cases. And what are the numbers? You had a couple of thousand, I believe it was, when you came in. Yeah, when the quorum was restored, which was about two months before I got there in March 2022, we had about 3,800 cases pending before the board. And since that time, by the end of February, we decided 1,219 cases. About 
1,150 of those were petitions for review. And then there are about 75 other kinds of headquarters cases like court remands, arbitration cases, compliance referrals, those kinds of things. And we've issued both precedential and non-precedential decisions, which are available on our website. That was my question. Are the precedential ones, do they take longer than the non-precedential ones? It depends on the case, but we try to front load decisions for cases we thought might be precedential because then non-precedential ones that would follow those cases would be able to be issued more efficiently, if that makes sense. So if you do a big one, a case that has a big holding, then you know maybe 25 cases follow it and we can just boom, 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 get those out. Yeah. How do you tell from initial, here's a file, it could be electronic, it, I guess there's still paper. How do you know whether it's going to be precedential until you read through the whole thing? This I rely on the geniuses in our Office of Appeals Council, our career staff, who look for these things. They look for emerging issues. They look to see, okay, what's an issue where parties are getting confused on? Or maybe the federal circuit has told us, yeah, you know, we don't like it this way, do it another way. And then we try to make a precedential decision to really help guide parties. Got it. So you don't break eggs. You already get a carton of pre-scrambled egg mix a step done for you. Yes, we're really lucky. The Office of Appeals Counsel is like what I would say is like our pool clerks like in an appellate court would have and they prepare drafts for us and do all the research and then we either like it or we don't like it. We may send it back to them for more work. We may rework it ourselves. It just totally depends. And you mentioned that you had put more resources on to clear the cases before. That was my punchline, that Tristan Levitt is gone. You're back down to two people. But what do you mean by more resources? Because there's the board members that have to read it. There's the staff. What else have you got? So once the board members vote on cases, it goes to our clerk's office for issuance. And they do a tremendous amount of work to make our decisions look really beautiful and accurate. I'm more interested in the accurate than the beauty. But they, you know, make sure that by the time the case is issued, the law hasn't changed again, that everything is copacetic, that the right appeal rights are given to the parties, all these different things. And plus, it's a massive undertaking. Like, you know, any adjudicative body, they have to make sure things are logged correctly, that the files are dealt with properly. So it takes time and effort even after the votes are done. And by the way, you don't discuss them amongst yourselves as board members, right? Everybody reviews the cases from the material and the cases and what the staff has prepared but you vote independently and then see whether it adds up to three to nothing or two to one or one to two. Yeah, that's almost right. We don't talk to each other directly because of the prohibitions of the Sunshine Act and government. We can't speak with one another without um, certain... A formal meeting. A formal meeting, right. So, I mean, we can say hello or have lunch together. We just can't discuss cases or adjudication. But we have staff that can kind of go back and forth to talk to each other, sort of, you know, shuttle diplomacy to see if we can reach agreement, consensus on a particular issue or not. And so we do tend to know, especially with cases that maybe are more difficult, we'll get some guidance from the other members' offices 
you know, hey, what do you think about this? We do some of that. So staff relays a note that says, could the good and honorable Mr. Limon, yes. Mr. Levitt, tell me what they think of XYZ? Yeah, that's right. Without the British parliamentary phrases. Without that, yes. We're speaking with Kathy Harris. She is the acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. And I had asked you whether you prefer chairman or chairwoman, and you prefer chairman for a really good reason. It's in the statute. (laughs) So I figure I'll just go with what the law says. All right. And just final question about the presidential decisions. It's precedent, and that needs to get out to the world. Out of that 1,219 cases, some number of those will be precedential. Does the precedents get added up and somehow disseminated as new information? Yes. First of all, we have our precedential decisions and non-precedential decisions separated on our website, so you can pull down a menu to read all the precedential decisions. The other thing we do is we issue case reports on our precedential decisions and also on noteworthy Federal Circuit decisions, so folks can read those as well. Those are published on the website. Because the MSPB does do periodic reports kind of summarizing trends and what people need to know about this whole vast area of prohibited personnel practices and basically how agency management should perform and act toward employees and vice versa. So do the precedential bodies get more than just posted separately, but somehow interpreted and a new volume is added to what we know about this whole topic? That's a really interesting question. So we have kind of two sides of the house at the board. We have our adjudicative side where we speak to federal agencies and appellants through our decisions. You know, this is how we think the merit principles should be applied, or this is where you went wrong agency in trying to terminate this person. We also have a side of the house that's our studies department, for for lack of a better word. It's our Office of Policy and Evaluation. And by statute, we're required to issue studies regarding the merit system principles and the prohibited personnel practices and other areas of interest to the merit system. So, for example, we just issued a report this week on perceptions of prohibited personnel practices, and it's an update for 2023. This is a study that's been done over the years many times, and we periodically update it for the public. That's published on our website as well. So that's an update to an earlier volume. Yes. And who should read that, by the way? Everybody should read that. I mean, if you're interested in merit systems, if you're a federal employee, if you're a federal agency manager, an executive, if you're an HR professional, chief human capital officers, all these types of folks would find, I think, the conclusions very interesting. For example, you know, we take data from surveys that are done across federal government. And what we found in this report is the most perceived prohibited personnel practice, that's really a tongue twister, four Ps. You did well. Yeah, thank you. Was an official trying to define the scope or manner of a recruitment action for the purposes of improving the chances of a particular person's right to compete for employment. So meaning pre-selection. Right. And that's the number one perceived prohibited personnel practice. It's sort of cooking the books in favor of a particular individual. Yeah. So if agencies want to decrease that perception among their workforce, what can they do, right? How can they make things better? Because we don't want people to think that there's pre-selection. We don't want there to be pre-selection. We want 
merit systems to be upheld. And, you know, it may be that a person who uh, an agency manager thinks is the best for the job winds up being the best for the job, right? Sure. So that can happen, and that's not illegal. But you don't want people to think that the system is gamed. Is gamed, yes. Right, because OPM does issue about 124 flexibilities for hiring. And basically, you're telling agencies, if you're going to use one of those, use it, justify it. Just don't be the lazy way, which happens to also be a prohibited personnel practice. That's right. We want things to be done fairly. We are up against the clock for a commercial break. Can you stick with me for one more segment? Of course I can. And the way you mentioned disseminating those precedential decisions, it strikes me that you're kind of like a model of the Supreme Court, only instead of the Constitution, you've got Title V. Well, it's probably, Tom, the first and only time we'll be compared to the Supreme Court. So thank you. That's very, very kind. We're adjudicators. You know, we're the appellate body of an administrative agency. But after us, that's not the end. In case, unlike at the Supreme Court, you know, that's it. Good point. Folks can appeal to a court of appeals, typically the federal circuit, sometimes like in whistleblower cases or if it's a discrimination case, they can go to other courts as well. Got it. And we should talk about the fact that finally, after years and years, there was a quorum of three members. And now Tristan Levitt's term was up. He's gone a couple of weeks now, a few days now. And what does that mean functionally for the board? And how else should we think about this? Because I don't think there's a nominee yet, right? Right. There's no nominee yet. We're waiting. First, I just want to say I'm really going to miss Tristan Levitt. He was a really great asset to the board. He came with a lot of experience in whistleblower law. He also held down the fort during the lack of quorum. And Mr. Levitt had a number of jobs there, right, before becoming a member. Yes. He was, in fact, general counsel, and then he was the acting agency head during the lack of quorum. He really did a great job, and we're really thankful to him for everything he did. So we're going to miss him. But the good news, that's the sad news. The good news is that we still have a quorum. You need two board members for the minimum amount of quorum. We have that, myself and Raymond Lamone. So we can still do everything we did when we had three members. We can vote on cases. We can issue reports. We can do everything that a quorum allows. So in Ray's term goes through 2025. I think he can hold over another year if mm-hmm. there's a no nominee. And I'm here through 2028. And again, I could hold on another year if necessary. So we're hopeful we'll get a third board member as soon as possible. I think it's better for the board to have a full complement, not just because it's better for us to have more views, but that's more hands to do the work. Sure. And is there a bipartisan nature to the MSPB, like so many other appointed commissions and boards and adjudicators, FCC, et cetera? Do there have to be two of one party and one of the other? There has to be at least one of one of the other party. And he was the other party. But just tell me there's no real political bias that comes into these types of decisions on MSPB Title V matters. Not that I've seen. We agreed on almost everything. So, you know, the law is the law as far as I'm concerned. 
and reasonable minds can differ on how it's interpreted, but none of us are looking at it from a political perspective. My guest is Kathy Harris, acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. And getting back to clearing that backlog, especially for the presidential cases, does it come into your mind that there are actual individuals out there, several per case, the agency people and the employee, who have been waiting maybe a decade for what your stamp of approval or disapproval is? I know very well because I spent two decades representing federal employees and agencies before the MSPB. Some of my former clients are those who were waiting for decisions, some for six years, seven years. And it's devastating for them to not have finality. People aren't always going to have the decision that they want, right? It's not always going to be the way they want it to go. But I feel very strongly they deserve a decision, And so that's why I'm pushing, I'm doing everything I can to get these decisions out. People's lives are ruined by not having a decision, not knowing what's going to happen. And I I understand it very well. Every day, that's what I think about. People are waiting. We got to get this out. On the other hand, we want to make sure we make the correct decision. We want to do the very best we can. So we can't rush through them and just, you know, flip a coin and say, okay, this is going to go that way. We want to do it right. And people have been waiting for a long time. So I want to make sure we make the right decision for them. So they deserve a decision, but they deserve a good decision. And a final question, and I think I know the answer, but you have till 2028, possibly 29. Do you like the work? Oh, I love it. I feel so lucky. You know, I've been a litigator, a trial lawyer, appellate lawyer for two decades, but I was an advocate, right? So this is my first time making decisions. And what I keep saying to people is when I was a a litigator, you know, you would meet the client, you'd get to know them, understand their story, and then you'd litigate their case and basically live with them and the other side for years, right? It just went on and on and on. And it was so frustrating to not get finality and relief or at least a decision for these folks. It just took so long. And now, you know, I get to read the file and make a decision. And I just feel so honored. Uh, It's just so wonderful to be able to be on this side. And I'm, I'm really happy. And that's good to hear because you did come through something known as Senate confirmation, <laughs> yes, which I did. is a form of modern day torture, you might say, between the paperwork, the legalities, the waiting, and some of the stupid questions you get in hearings. That's mine saying that, not you saying that. So it sounds like you would advise people that are waiting on a dream job give it what it takes, even if it involves Senate confirmation. It's worth it when you come through that tunnel. First of all, I just want to say I think that the rigor of Senate confirmation is important. We want to make sure that good people get into these jobs. We want to make sure that anybody who has such an important job is vetted properly. So I didn't mind it. It was part of the process. took a long time. That's part of the process, too. I think it's totally worth it. And I would encourage any nominee who's in that pipeline, hang in there. It gets better on the other side. And lightning round, are you working from home or from the office? I'm mostly in the office. I'm in the office four days a week. Sometimes I come in on Fridays, too, just because I miss it. And Um, the staff? The staff is there for the most part at least two days a week. Some come in every day. Some are a little bit less. Telework hasn't hampered operations at all. Well, I think 
like every agency, we had to make do during the pandemic. I wasn't there. So, you know, we did what we could. I'm seeing a real value in hybrid. You know, sometime in the office is good. Sometime telework is good. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what's the right balance. And as I say, mission first, people always. So you need your people to accomplish your mission, and you need to keep your mission foremost in your mind. Kathy Harris is acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. By the way, how does acting come off? So I still have to go through another round of confirmation for the chairman position. So since the new year, I got renominated by the president, and then now I have to go through committee. And once I'm through committee, it's back to the floor to wait for a vote. All right. So you've been through that merry-go-round once already. You know, it's not as hard the second time around. All right. Again, Kathy Harris is acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. Great having you in. Thank you so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. A really busy and contentious time for Congress kicks off this week when the Biden administration releases its 2024 budget request. But that's not all. We get our weekly Hill outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, I want to start with a hearing that is coming up because we just heard from the acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board, Kathy Harris. And I asked her, as we heard moments ago, what it would take to get her acting off her title. And it turns out reconfirmation from the Senate. And that's happening this week. That hearing? Right. That's starting with the Senate Homeland Security Committee, uh, I think, voting on her nomination this week to send that to the full Senate. She was nominated last year, as you know, by the Biden administration and was confirmed to be a member of the board. But her nomination to be chairman was lingered throughout the end of the year and had to be returned and renominated when the Congress met again this year. So um, it's kind of perfunctory. It's a step that you have to go through. But um, she needs that confirmation, as she told you, to actually get that chairmanship and lose that acting title. So that's one of the many nominations that the Senate is trying to process both on the executive side and on the judicial side as well, with all the district and circuit court judges that they hope to fill. Right. And one of the members of the Merit Systems Protection Board, his term ended a couple of weeks ago, but there's no nomination to succeed Tristan Levitt and make a three-member board again that we're aware of. Right. And I believe that's been one of the problems, right, is that that board lacked a quorum for a long time. They got it last year, um, but they still need this chairmanship filled. So I'm, I'm sure they're working behind the scenes on those nominations as they do. But to my knowledge, there isn't a pick yet for that. Yeah. Be interesting what it's like to be chairman of two people, <laughs> I guess. But somehow they figure out how to get through it in a day's work. And let's get back to the budget here. That's the big drop thud coming in a couple of days. And what does that cause in Congress? And We all hear that term, you know, dead on arrival, but it's a starting point of discussion, I think, is a more creative way to put it. Yeah, it is. It's dead on arrival in some ways, but not in others. I would think if you look at the DOD portion of the budget, for example, that is really a starting point where the way that Congress approaches that is really a give and take from what the administration wants, possibly lifting up the amount of money that the administration sends up and asking for more. At least that's been the trend in some of the recent budget debates. But on the non-defense side, the Biden administration is likely to ask for much more money than House Republicans in particular are going to want to spend because this budget release does come amid the 
discussions, they're not really a debate yet, but really behind the scene discussions on what to do with the debt limit and what to attach with any sort of debt limit solution to appease House Republicans. Now, of course, the Biden administration would prefer just to lift the debt ceiling to, to give themselves the cushion they need to continue to operate the government. But at this point, we're still probably going to have a lot of back and forth over the coming months. But it does kick off a process. It is an important document. There are a lot of details in it, but it's only a starting point And Congress has a lot to say, and they'll be saying it over the next several months. Right. And the idea of 12 separate appropriations bills, at least in the House, maybe, and I don't know, you can tell us about the Senate. It's a revival of a great dream of regular order. And Washington is getting very cynical about this whole idea of continuing resolutions and omnibus bills and attaching all kinds of things to the omnibus bills because they have to pass. Any words yet? Any kind of shoots of fresh thinking on regular order? Well, the House certainly, the Republicans did not like the omnibus bill that came out last year. And I think that's one of their prime talking points, even when we had that speaker debate at the beginning of the year when Kevin McCarthy was trying to, to win the speakership over that week. They don't want a massive bill dropped on them at the last minute that contains all the funding for all the government agencies. They want to have regular order there. On the Senate side, we had this week or last week, um, Susan Collins and Patty Murray, who are the new leaders of that committee, they released a schedule to try and get all of their bills out of committee starting in May. Um, so, you know, a plan to do that is a really good starting point. We haven't heard the timing yet from the House, although they have released earmark guidance, which are their rules for those special projects. So they're they're starting up the engine here on appropriations in both chambers to try and make progress. Now, there's going to be two different visions from House Republicans and maybe a more bipartisan approach in the Senate that could make it hard to get to resolution. But I, I think they'd like to avoid an omnibus if they could. That's always an appropriator's dream because, you know, it's easier to have up or down votes on individual bills rather than all the government funding at once. And there is the idea that Congress actually looks individually at agency appropriation requests, and they used to talk about them with program people about their programs. Right. And I think that's still happening at the staff level and even in the subcommittee level where different agency heads are going to be brought up, both the, you know, the top cabinet officials, but smaller portions and divisions of agencies will have to go up and justify what they're asking for. And there'll be a give and take there. But yeah, it's, you know, when, when you get to the fact that the bill, which is what most members get to vote on, is one giant thing, that there's really a, a reluctance to continue that practice among a lot of members. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And I I wanted to ask you about this bill that would bar federal employees from censoring content on private social media. What's that all about? It seems to coincide with the whole TikTok deal, which is not related, but kind of it's all social media and the poison around it. Right. And I, I think it's also related to some of the hearings that House Republicans have had about social media and some of what they said went on with the Hunter Biden laptop story back in the day. So it's, it's part of this theme. And the idea here is that it would specifically bar federal employees from censoring speech on private platforms, lawful speech, obviously, if it's criminal or, or something like that, or, or, or that would not be covered by this. But it is one of the, the big tech bills that they're going to move. There's kind of a shift away from big tech antitrust actions to looking at this these censorship questions as they are. So this bill is very much of that theme. It was approved by the Oversight and Accountability Committee last week, coming up on the floor this week. So we'll see what that debate looks like and, and how people respond. But I think this is part of the story that House Republicans really want to tell and talk about as they continue some of their oversight work and obviously even with legislation like this. Interesting. Yeah. And related to issues that don't seem directly federal, 
this criminal code change in D.C., that's a surprise that this would get through the Democratic Senate. We know how the House feels on it. And then the president said, yeah, that that seemed shocking. Yeah, it snowballed over time because the House, as you noted, brought up a piece of legislation, which under the D.C. Home Rule Act, which created the D.C. Council and, and set up the local government that exists now, Congress reserved the right to review and in some cases overturn D.C. laws. Um, The House passed two bills, one dealing with non-citizen voting, the other dealing with this package of changes to the criminal code. And they I think it was 31 Democrats in the House supported this, went over to the Senate. The vote was anticipated when the time came and um, Democrats have said they're going to back it. Some of them, Um, I think there will still be votes against it, just as there were in the House. Uh, But it, it likely will pass and go over to President Biden, who at one point said he wouldn't veto it, then came out and said he'd sign it, which is kind of a surprise. It does pit two different things, you know, concern about crime versus the self-governance of the District of Columbia. Um, and you've seen a lot of discussion about that, um, I think, from Eleanor Holmes Norton, the delegate here and others who really wish Congress would stay out of D.C.'s business. But <laughs> as I said, the, the law that created the government did reserve this right to Congress. And earlier, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the FAIR Act with that 8.7 percent federal employee pay raise, a couple of things like that. And what you hear the senators saying is, yeah, great idea, this and a few others, but it's going to be in September. It still seems like there's this pushing back of these important but regular old-fashioned legislative type of ideas being pushed back to late in the first session of this Congress. That's still the case? It feels like that sometimes. I mean, the last week really felt like Congress really stepped on the gas in terms of holding a lot of hearings and taking more votes and and starting to get the the mechanisms of Congress up and running. So I think we are going to see more votes on more bills, whether it's the Senate Foreign Relations Committee looking at the Iraq war authorizations from, you know, in some cases decades ago and trying to change that or turning through more nominations. So we are seeing more activity happening on more things. We're going to obviously when the budget request hits Capitol Hill, that'll kick off the budget season. So I do think things are starting to move more quickly. um, But individual items may slip till later in the agenda as they figure out which to prioritize. And each chairman has their right to set their agenda in the order they want um, in a lot of ways. And just a final detail question. There could be a Senate panel that's having a hearing on the train derailment. I mean, what can they really accomplish that trains should not derail. Nobody thinks they should. Well, there are some bipartisan bills already introduced and maybe some partisan ones as well. So Congress likes to do things when they can. So there are some ideas that are out there. There's even proposals to help the community of East Palestine, Ohio, with maybe a paycheck protection program style program. So I think we'll, we'll hear a lot of discussion about how to respond. The thing that might be interesting about this hearing is it's a chance for senators to question the CEO of Norfolk Southern, the the railroad that operates the train that derailed. So um, I think this is just the beginning of discussions around rail, but you probably see Congress want to do something about it, put its mark on the question as the year goes on. Lauren Duggan is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your docket. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Defense Department is looking at a 2025 deadline to get good at artificial intelligence. Now the Air Force and Space Force are looking at training airmen in this growing technology. The Air Force is also working with companies and academia on projects to use DOD data to train AI algorithms. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Air Force's chief data and AI officer, Ellen Vedrine. You can't do great artificial intelligence without data. 
80 plus percent of successful AI is based on successful data, data preparation, data quality. They're heart of artificial intelligence and data analytics. So it's really about some of our top foundational priorities, operationalizing data and AI for mission readiness, and then expanding data and analytics really as strategic imperatives to deliver data-driven insights and information advantage. So think of data as being the core foundation to operationalize AI at scale. Okay, great. Well, of course, the Air Force has been hard at work with both data and AI initiatives. What are some of the most exciting or biggest potential use cases for AI that you are currently looking at? And how far along is the Air Force in fielding those AI use cases? I would say our AI efforts are in various stages, depending on the initiative, some early, others maturing out. One of the first ones I always point to is, as an exemplar, is our Department of the Air Force AI Accelerator at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Our airmen and guardian collaborate daily with some of the top AI researchers in the country. They work side by side. And it's about our airmen and guardian bringing that operational perspective to the research community, accelerating impactful research to support our mission. Any given day, there's more than a dozen different use cases that we're working on. Some of the other things that I think are really exciting is our emerging AI initiative on what we're calling autonomous data and AI experimentation proving ground, or we call it ADEX. And this is a joint venture between our organization and AFWERX, which is the innovation cell at the Department of the Air Force. And it's hosted by the 96th Test Swing, and it's supported by Eglin Air Force Base Enterprise. And here, they're working on establishing a foundational integrated test and experimentation methods and codify them in emerging practices that will enhance and drive our future of what we're calling autonomous and AI-driven capability, so really having a true testing proving ground. But we also have smaller use cases specifically, and when I look at some of the ones that I find very interesting from a mission perspective is one of our use cases is a machine learning application that uses satellite-based cloud imagery to predict what the weather radar return is likely to be. Another one is a machine learning tool that ingests airborne synthetic aperture radar data to predict electro-optical imagery. And so it's really about data-driven insights that are truly mission-focused. Okay, a lot to dive into there. Let's go a little bit further into the ADEX you described, the foundational testing and proving ground for AI. That seems to be a really foundational thing for AI because the AI, the algorithms usually rely on a lot of training data. You know, it needs to ramp up to full maturity. Tell me how that is a foundational element of getting AI up to bigger and better things? We are very early in our proving drown, but the commander in that particular organization, Colonel Cinco Hamilton, was actually previously assigned at the MIT AI Accelerator. So he's taking all of the lessons learned that he learned working on the initial, I would say, more academically focused research and then bringing it into an operational environment. So really taking lessons learned and scaling it out. And we truly are in the beginning stages of that. But the first step was to really just say, 
we're going to have a proving ground or a test area to where we can take what we would say the entry level use case and scale it to the next level so that we can actually make sure that it's working from a mission perspective. So then we can actually scale it out across the enterprise. So it's really like a crawl, walk, run approach where we did the research. Now we're taking it into an operational test environment and then later on scaling it out from an enterprise perspective. It seems like one common through line to many of the use cases you just mentioned is that there is this collaborative nature to it, that it is a largely public-private partnership. It's you know working with the folks in academia. It's working with the folks in the private sector, uh, really getting the best and the brightest working on this kind of issue. Can you just expand on that a little bit more on how those partnerships are key to accelerating breakthroughs in AI? I think that it If you've heard me speak before, I like to say that data and AI are team sports. We don't do this alone. So it's really about bringing in the best and the brightest. And there, one of the examples I can say is that another partnership that we did with AppWorks, our innovation cell, and our AI accelerator was early in our journey, we started datathons. And our first datathon, we took a very highly manual scheduling tool and we ran a competition. And and the winner of the first datathon was created a capability that in three days had a 92% accuracy rate. So now we could really repurpose some of that manual labor efforts into really using our airmen and guardian for the, the hard problems. Changing gears here a little bit. DOD is gearing up for AI readiness in a big way. By 2025 is one of the milestones we're looking at here. What does AI readiness mean for the Air Force and what steps is it taking to get there? The first thing I always talk about is that our department is now a military department with two services, United States Air Force and United States Space Force. And when we look specifically at the term of AI ready, it begins by looking at the congressionally mandated commission, National Security Commission on AI. And if you read into the work that that commission has done, it's about establishing baseline digital acumen among our department's warfighters. But it's also about access to digital infrastructure and software required for ubiquitous AI integration. And so what does that mean to our airmen and our guardians across the globe? It's access to the data sets, it's access to compute, and the algorithms that our total force needs to develop AI solutions from uh, tactical squadron level challenges all the way to strategic. So I like to say that our team always is focused on mission first, people always. And so the drive to AI readiness begins with investing in our team, and we continue to make targeted investments to build that acumen. And so one of the pathfinders or pilots that is currently ongoing is a national security-focused AI course at MIT. And here we're bringing together senior leaders, general officers, senior executives, but it's not just about upskilling in AI, it's about taking it to the next step to collaborate among each other to identify opportunities to synchronize efforts across the enterprise. Ellen Vidreen, the Chief Data and Artificial Intelligence Officer at the Air Force and Space Force, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 